welcome to the latest episode of High Stakes. I'm Paige Soya, the Managing Director of K Street Capital, which is an early stage venture capital firm in Washington, D.C. And this episode is about two separate but related topics, cash flow for early stage companies and how to evaluate it, as well as the downstream impacts we expect to see from the fallout of Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, in each episode, we showcase perspectives from founders and investors, and we're incredibly lucky today to have have two uh, incredible people on this show. One is one of our longtime investors at K Street Capital, Rich Leggett, who's also been an operator CEO multiple times, um, and one of our founders, Manu Smadja, who's the founder and CEO of Empower, uh, which is also one of our uh, one of our most successful portfolio companies. Let's do some quick intros and we'll get started. Go ahead, Manu. Fantastic. So I'm Manu Smadja, the CEO and co-founder of Empower Financing. And in a nutshell, Empower is the leader in international student financing in North America. That, that may sound fancy in practice. All it means is we finance students coming from 200 countries around the planet, coming to the top 425 universities in the US and Canada. And for myself and the more than 200 people who work at Empower Financing today, this mission really of empowering the brightest minds around the planet to achieve their full educational potential is something that resonates very, very personally. Uh, I was myself an international student 24 years ago now. And uh, even though I did okay academically, I really struggled financially through school, took a bunch of odd jobs, ultimately graduated with the help of my family, but it really planted a seed in my head. Why is it so difficult? to get access to education and to finance education for international students. Uh, and after uh, two decades of work effectively in financial services around the planet, both in Western Europe, uh, in the US and in Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, there is sort of a pivotal moment for me nine years ago when a student reached out for financial help. Uh, and I was able to help that one student, but it, it sort of woke me up to the need to find a systemic solution to access to financing for international students. Uh, and nine years later, here I am. And uh, glad to be on this show page. Thank you. Thanks, Manu. And we've invested in your company, I think, five times now in total since the very early days, which is kind of cool to see. Absolutely. Um, Rich? Yeah, thanks, Paige. And, and uh, Manu, I, I, I think you know we're, we're a huge fan of, of what you're doing in the company. And uh, as an investor, um, it's always wonderful to invest in a company that is not only you know very successful, but is actually changing the world for the better. And if we can find those things in all, all, all the time, I think we'd be very happy uh, and the world would be a, a better place. So we, we keep looking for that. Um, so my name is Rich Leggett. Um, as Paige mentioned, I'm a longstanding investor. I'm actually a co-founder of, of K Street Capital. Um, my career is 33 years in uh, in the making, three chapters, I guess, is the best way to describe it. Um, I started in consulting at uh, Accenture in uh, the financial services practice. Um, I then moved into um, equity research um, and, in, and investment banking uh, in the middle chapters of my career. I was a managing director at Goldman Sachs in both London and in New York. Um, and I covered technology companies uh, as an analyst and as a banker, primarily software services businesses. Um, and then, uh, and then for the last seventeen years, I've been uh, a CEO of three different companies, um, and they've all been. Turns out, they've all been turnarounds. Um, they weren't. Uh, the first one wasn't supposed to be. The second one wasn't supposed to be, and the third one I knew was going to be. 
Um, but uh, but steered two of those companies to successful uh, turnarounds, exits, and ultimate public offerings. And the other company uh, steered it through the financial crisis, um, which was uh, a bit of a miracle, which I'm sure we'll get into later on. Um, so that's kind of my background. Now, now that I've sold our last company, um, I am uh, in the process of doing other things. One, one thing is actually um, raising a venture fund uh, to focus on uh, the community uh, bank and f financial technology for community banks, where community banks are the LPs and the... Um, and the companies we invest in, you know, ultimately are there to help community banks improve their uh, competitiveness in the market. Um, they obviously are incredibly important uh, nationwide to the success of the U.S. economy and to small business and local businesses. So we're trying to do what we can to uh, to help them in improve their competitiveness through uh, investing in technology. So that's the thesis. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of where things are now and um, excited to be here as well. Thanks, Rich and Manu. So this episode is going to be about cash flow for early stage companies and how, how they should be thinking about it, how we as investors are thinking about it. And then it's sort of a two-part episode because we're also going to touch on um, what happened with Silicon Valley Bank and what the impacts of that were and are expected to be on the venture community. Um, so I'll be very interested to hear your thoughts, especially Rich, when we get to that part. But let's start with the the first part. And I would love to, I've known both of you guys for many years now, and I've actually known you through some very challenging situations that you, you came out on top with. And I, I think these stories will be helpful for other people to hear when they're dealing with similar situations. Um, so why don't we just start there? Either one of you just want to share, um, you know, some of the sort of like challenging business cash situations you've been in and what the outcomes were, how you sort of turned it around. Manu, do you want to go first? Or you want me to go first? Sure, I'm. I'm happy to uh, to start. So, um, I would say, as a as a startup and as a land tech company, uh, I always joke that a CEO stood for chief extraction officer. I've always been sort of resource constrained and and essentially raising cash, either cash for the day to day operations, so effectively equity cash or cash for lending. Uh, and so that's that's really a good chunk of my time in the past decade. Uh, and we've gone through some rough times. I think the the time that stands out the most, and I'm sure we're not alone here, is in 2020. Uh, as a lender to international students in the US, uh, COVID was particularly disruptive. Uh, I think it, it prevented new students, international students from coming into the country. Uh, it kept the ones that were in the country here unable to sort of go home and, and, and a lot of them faced financial distress. Um, it, uh, it certainly shut down capital markets for a little bit. And so we, we found ourselves in March 2020 in a really, really rough uh, cash situation. Uh, and we had to take some tough measures. And uh, I, there's two or three sort of key lessons I think I, I learned from that. Uh, one is uh, we had to go about a third of our workforce in our in our DC office during that time, and it was awful. Uh, I think it's a it, it's hard enough to to let go uh, people on the team who who are not strong performers. It's a whole other ordeal to let go sort of the flesh and bone of the company uh, and people who you know who have been performing, who stand by you as a founder and a leader, uh, and unfortunately who you're not able to keep sort of to in order to keep the, the ship afloat. Uh, and so that was, that was a very difficult time. And, and I think the lesson learned there, and, and I think we, we applied it well, was 
and we measure once and cut once, right? So we, we cut once and cut deep. Uh, and I think that that's very important. We've seen other companies, I think um, a sort of infamous example of that. And, you know, I, I think they, they learned the lesson and it's no it's sort of knock on, on the CEO or the company. I think we, we all make mistakes, but I think better.com had several waves of layoffs and then they've become sort of a, an internet sensation for it almost. Uh, and I think it, it could have probably been better measured, uh, well, better measured, better, uh, better executed there for sure. So again, measure twice, but cut once. Otherwise you decrease the credibility you have with your own team. Um, the second lesson learned is we set up a very small task force in 2020 to try to reduce other costs. Uh, and what we learned very quickly is don't be afraid to ask just by calling various vendors. Uh, so providers of our software licenses or hardware or what have you, we were able to significantly reduce our costs. Uh, and that was, it was a surprise to us how much just like asking the question actually got us. Uh, we were able to switch to cheaper licenses to get sort of discounts or promos at the time. Uh, it forced us also to look at licenses maybe we weren't using uh, or things where we were being, uh, you know, the features we didn't need and so on. Uh, so there's a whole lot that, uh, that we learned there. Um, and the last one is, you know, in addition to, you know, cutting staff, which, which is ultimately a, a last resort, uh, one was to reduce salaries or rather swap with equity. Uh, we, we offered it uh, to our leadership team and, uh, and people were quite enthusiastic about it. You know, they said, yes, we understand the situation we're in. Um, and they believed in the company in the future. They saw the upside and they were willing to swap some of their cash earnings, their base salary with equity upside. Uh, and so we were able to preserve cash that way. Um, so those are the, the two or three things that really uh, allowed us to navigate that very difficult time in 2020. And then I guess before, Rich, before we go to you, Manu, I would love to just share with the audience what the outcome of all that was, because it was a scary time. We also invested at K Street, and, and I wish we had invested more in retrospect. <laughs> uh, it was probably one of our most successful single tranches of, of any investment we've ever made, I think. And, um, and, and, and maybe you can talk a little bit about what you did there, you know, how much money you were able to get from your investor base at that time, and then you know, like where you are today, which is a, just a hugely different place than you know back in 2020. Absolutely. Yes, we are. Uh, you know, we we we're, we're trying to do everything we could to sort of navigate the storm, uh, preserve our cash, and then get additional cash infusions. And we we're lucky to have groups like K Street that really doubled down on us during that time, and were able to help. Uh, we created extra incentives, so it's obviously a riskier time to invest in in any company in 2020. Um, but we provided sort of additional warrant upside uh, for investors, and I think. Uh, in retrospect, I think it was a great deal for everyone. It kept the company at floats. Uh, ultimately, our business sort of thrived in 2020, especially in 2021. Uh, we we're able to secure additional uh, funding, equity funding at the end of 2020, actually it was the biggest round we'd ever done uh, to date uh, in December 2020. So it, it all ended up really, really well, I think, for all parties involved. Uh, and, and I think it was definitely a team effort, internal team and extended team through investors, I guess. So yeah. uh, eternally grateful to uh, not just to the investors that are there in good times, but the investors that are there when, when the waters are rocky uh, and glad we can create upside for everyone. Great, thanks. Yeah, I mean, I would say, I think you're probably two or three times the size you were then today too, across the board with all the, 
all the good metrics and all the financials. So it's just been incredible to see and um, interesting for other investors to be thinking about because there are a lot of opportunities out there like this where everybody can win. And this is just a great example of that. Um, so thanks. Rich, maybe you can tell some of your stories. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, I just want to say one of the things, and I'll come back to this as part of my story, but one of the things I think was really important as it relates to Manu and Empower is reputation matters a lot. And so, um, you know, one of the things that we look at as I used to look at all the time as an analyst, which I think prepares me well to look at things as an investor is how, how does a company handle crisis and how does a leader and management handle crisis? And um, reputation really matters. And so while it was really um, a difficult time for someone like Empower to go through what they were going through. We had a lot of faith and trust in Manu because we saw how he was handling the crisis, the sacrifices that he and the team were making, and also the fact that you know fundamentally we viewed COVID as a short-term disruptor to a massive secular opportunity. But if if that reputation for trust hadn't been built uh, there, then you know I don't know that you know you would have the same reaction from investors. So I'll, I'll come back to that because it. it part of my, my, my story too, but I wanted to make that point. Um, I've been around a long time. So um, it, you start to mark your years by the crises that you get to navigate through. So I've been through the first tech bubble bursting, the second tech bubble bursting, the financial crisis and COVID. Um, and uh, all of those uh, things are uh, are interesting. And, and for a large part of that, I was managing businesses. And so um, and I've never been lucky enough to be one of these Silicon Valley uh, CEOs that someone just throws like $100 million on your balance sheet and you know says, take lots of risks and see what happens. We've always been capital constrained. And so I think how you handle yourself in a crisis situation also comes down to how you value your cash uh, when you run your business every single day. And so we've always viewed uh, and looked at our business carefully on, on a cash flow basis because it's really important, I think, Sometimes because of valuation metrics, especially if you're in the SaaS businesses with ARR and magic numbers and uh, CAC over LTV and growth rates being valued uh, uh, and EBITDA um, uh, more, more looked at closely than actual cash. And so you can, you can sometimes lose the forest of the trees if you're not paying attention to the cash in and cash out. So I would say to any founder, uh, that's the single most important thing to model first, and then you can model all the other stuff later. And then secondly, for any investor to, um, you know, make sure you understand the cash in and cash out and not just all of those other metrics. And you'd be surprised how many people don't focus on that stuff. So number one to me is like always kind of whether you have a lot of cash or a little cash on your balance sheet, um, you should manage your business very closely around uh, understanding the cash flow dynamics, because then based on that, you can then decide um, where you want to invest, where you want to take risk and what the ROI is on that. So that's, that's important. Um, so I've always operated that way. When a crisis hits, it becomes more acute and more intense and, and very focused. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, using the COVID example, again, I think Manu said a lot of the right things. Um, but when we had to navigate our, our business through that, I think the things I would add, we did a lot of what Manu said. Um, the first thing was lead by example. So we didn't ask anybody to do something that we didn't do. We cut everybody's salaries, but um, but I took the biggest cut and uh, and we sort of tiered it all the way down. But we sort of said everybody's, you know, we're kind of in this together. 
we, we also were able to give, fortunately give people equity in exchange for that sacrifice and some other things that, you know, we, 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 we could do. And then when we restored things, we restored it in reverse order as well. So I think people appreciated the sort of le leading by example and leading from the front. And I think that's really uh, important to do when you're, uh, when, you're, uh, when you're a company of any size. And then the next thing I think is to be honest and communicate and be transparent with people. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's sometimes a hard message, especially if you're early. Like I think with COVID, we were very early in taking some of the actions we took. And I think it was shocking to people within a week. I think it was less shocking because it was happening all around. But, um, but the communication and transparency and honesty, I think, was greatly appreciated. And then regularly updating people where we are and, and so that they saw the path of, of, of what we were doing, I think is important. And then I think the other thing that I would say, and then I'll talk about reputation, but the other thing that I will say is that um, use it as an opportunity. Um, you know, uh, look at every dollar you spend and make that part of your DNA in terms of uh, almost like a zero-based budgeting process each year. But also when you have a, a crisis, it's a good opportunity to, you know, break some glass and do some things that you might not do normally in terms of maybe changing your business model or changing your pricing model or doing things that you feel like you were kind of stuck and unable to do before. It gives you a little bit of air cover and it gives you maybe the, the, the chance to take some risk, even though that sounds counterintuitive because your natural thing would be not to change. But sometimes, you know, in those moments, you can actually change things for the better. Um, and we, we found that at our at our company. Um, on the reputation front, um, sometimes guardian angels come from weird places. Um, so, um, you know, I think one of the, th the things I that love really, story. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the things that really helped us was um, just through some other business uh, interests that I have and just kind of getting to know, um, you know, just uh, just getting to know people and you build a reputation. Hank, Hank Paulson at Goldman used to say reputation takes years to build and can be destroyed in a second. And so very always was very mindful of being very careful and you know proud of the reputation you build and you never know when when that comes in handy so when covid hit and we had um, a need for funding our our traditional backer which was a private equity firm basically told all of its portfolio companies make what you have last it's kind of like a little bit what's happening now um, we're not giving anybody else anymore and it was somewhat of an understandable reaction because everybody had their hand out potentially and nobody knew what was going to happen <clears throat> but um, but uh, my wife bumped into a, a, this, this person who's kind of been a bit of a mentor to me and, and a very kind of successful executive of his own accord that was retired. And he said, so how's Rich handling all this? And she said, he's pretty stressed. He's like, have him call me. And I explained what was going on. And he said, let's call the private equity firm. And, uh, on, and this was like on a Friday. He's like, let's call them on Sunday. And he's like, I'll, I'll, um, I'll, we're going to wire money in by Friday, no due diligence needed. Um, and, you know, there were some exchange of a uh, strong exchange of, you know, uh, control and equity and that sort of thing. But he was willing to do what no one else is willing to do um, at a time when, it, you know, it wasn't so obvious and um, and it was based on reputation. And so I think that's rare and lucky, but it, it you know, gave all of us some incredible confidence and um, and the fact that he was willing to do that and take a long term view, I think, also made the team work that much harder. So sometimes you kind of having uh, that kind of support makes you just not only want to work harder, but wants, wants you to really create an outsized out, outcome for everybody. And, and, and that's what, that's what ended up happening. But it, um, it was really, I think, largely based on, you know, building kind of a, a, a reputation uh, and brand for, uh, you know, being reliable and somebody that, you know, uh, is even keeled and some things like that, that I think, you know, uh, 
because it's not obvious that somebody would just do that you know in a short amount of time without any diligence and also without taking a huge pound of flesh from the employees and and it was the opposite he kind of gave the employees more ownership and kind of took the pound of flesh from the private equity firm which you know i think they were willing to give up because they didn't have an alternative so anyway that was an interesting story and maybe you can share the outcome too of that of that because i think it's pretty impressive um yeah, so it's almost amazing because from that moment on, and we did, you know, this is a combination of a few things. Like we would really like looked carefully at the budget. We had all taken cuts and uh, and you know reequitized people to make up for that, um, and we reinvented some things in our business. But almost within thirty days of that, we started. You know, I think the world settled down from COVID a little bit, but we started to accelerate and growth. And we grew every month after that um, at increasing rates. And we ended up selling the company uh, 18 months later. And he ended up making, you know, six X his, uh, his investment in a very short amount of time. So that was, and he didn't want to sell, actually, it was interesting. He was kind of happy to keep going because he was so excited about what we were doing. But we, um, you know, strategically, we all looked at what was going on and it made sense for everybody. But um, it was really a great outcome for him. It actually ended up being a great outcome for the private equity firm, uh, and it and it was great for the employees. Um, but you know, I I think more so than that, it was probably the most um, rewarding and satisfying time for all of us in the company, even though it was the hardest time. And I think there's something to be said about that in terms of culture and teamwork and uh, and 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 it helped educate everybody. You know, back to the theme of cash flow, just the the north star KPIs that matter the most in your business. And you can't have a lot of them. You have to focus on very few and explain to people why they're important. And some of those are important because they drive valuation. And some of those are important because they pay the bills. And uh, and it's important to have both uh, uh, education and understanding across the company of that and transparency. Uh, yeah, exactly. And on, on that note, I would say maybe we can talk a little bit about some of the red flags or like early indicators that you see, not not just when something happens to, in the economy that everybody knows is going on, but just in the day to day of running a business or when you're looking at a company, what some of those things are that are indicators that, you know, now is the time to cut burn. And just and just for the audience of people who don't deal in cash flow every day, like like we do. Um, burn is just how much cash you are burning, like using each month basically to survive. Uh, yeah. so your, your expenses are a lot higher than your income that's coming in. Yeah, I, I can I can start Manu and then feel free to jump in um, if you want. Uh, the um, So uh, first of all, every business is slightly different, right? Like, and so every business has a different business model um, and, um, and has different um, uh, cycles, I guess, to it. So, you know, I think you have to tailor these to your business, but at the end of the day, every business to some extent has some rate ratio between, you know, sort of bookings or sales to billing to collection. Right. And, and so the most important relationship to understand is what does that look like? How long does it take? How, how can you maybe improve it? And then at the same time, how does that, align with what your spend is and your expenses. And if you understand those ratios very well, um, then I think you'll, you'll, you'll manage your business very, very carefully. In addition to all the other things we talked about, like, you know, being real careful with, you know, thinking about what your budget is built on and does every dollar, you know, generate revenue or save money or drive efficiency. Like, you know, you should, you should ask yourself that question each year in your budgeting process. But at the end of the day, if, it takes you longer to sell. It's going to take you longer to build. It's going to take you longer to collect, which means you're going to burn through more cash. Um, and so if you haven't aligned your expenses accordingly or understand what that ratio looks like, you could find yourself 
in need of in need of cash sooner than you think or of, of uh, you know taking out a line or whatever it is but if you really understand those ratios and then you're constantly looking at them one based on uh, historical and seasonal trends and then two on how you can improve them you're going to run a really well uh, oiled machine but if you're if you're ignoring that and all you're focusing on is bookings and uh, and you know other metrics that might drive valuation but ultimately don't uh, don't necessarily pay bills, then I think you might find yourself uh, caught out a little bit, especially if you're if you're running in a uh, you know somewhat capital constrained uh, manner on your balance sheet. And on my side, maybe what what I'd add is um is sometimes the the CEO or founder reflexes are are counterintuitive uh, to this. Like I think uh, there's a certain healthy element of uh, delusion or or uh, optimism that's needed. For, for founders, you gotta you gotta believe that the world can be better, right? Like by definition, in order to launch a, a company, you gotta believe that and be naive enough to think, and, and maybe a little self-absorbed enough to think that you, the founder, can change it. And so that sort of runs counter to then believing that th things can actually get worse. Uh, and and if you you sorry, it's almost like the the Daniel Kahneman like sort of like a system one system two like type thinking. So like there, there's all your gut instinct that says you know the world's getting better, CAC's gonna go down, we're gonna have all these customers, etc. No, we don't need as much cash. And your system two should should actually be like no no like uh, the best advice I, I guess I got on this one is that whatever amounts of cash or fundraise you think you need, double that. And then once you have that number in mind, double it again. And that's the actual number. So start, start sort of preparing yourself in any fundraise or in any sort of endeavor with, with more, four times more cash than you ever thought you needed. Um, and then I think it's same sort of guidance around sort of what duration uh, you, you need to get to the next set of milestones, whether that's a fundraise or, or another proof point. Um, and then sort of similarly, I think people always think through whether oh, there's economies of scale or CAC will get better, et cetera. And, and the reality is um, when you're growing, uh, you're always trying to get that marginal customer and that can be more expensive uh, to acquire. And then the more successful you are, the more followers you're going to have, right? Either you're going to start uh, attracting sort of copycat companies or Established companies are going to say like, "Hey, this this group is doing really well. Let's let's take a look." Um, and and what that means is, your environment becomes more competitive, and therefore your acquisition costs go up as well. So I, I think it's just important as as we think about red flags or how to prepare ourselves uh, in terms of cash to keep these things in mind. So start with very healthy unit economics and start with far more cash than you think you'll actually need. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one of page one other thing I would just add is that. Um, I think uh, you know we we sit in the investor seat a lot, and um, Paige, correct me if I'm wrong, but I've never seen a deck that doesn't have a hockey stick up and to the right um, from any company, right? Right. And right. I've also never seen any company that executes <laughs> that. So one of the things that I think is a good discipline to have as a, as a optimist, optimism is contagious, and and if you're not an optimistic CEO and you don't set an optimistic culture, then you know chances are you're not going to be that successful. But one discipline I think to have, especially as you think about um, big spend, you know, and investments that you make, and every year as you go through your planning for the next year or the next three or four years, you have investments you want to make. Is what could go wrong, um, and we don't ever think about what could go wrong, so it's always going to go right, right? And so to some extent. Um, 
at, at, uh, at my old company, we would, we would uh, do this exercise and we'd also encourage our clients to do this exercise. We called it a pre-mortem exercise. So kind of imagine a few years down the road and something's gone wrong. Why did it go wrong? You know, anticipate it and do some mitigation up front to that so that you're prepared for that. And that could be mitigation. That means I need more capital because this will inevitably take longer or it won't take off as fast as I think, or it might be mitigation around execution risk or resourcing, whatever it is. But um, it, it's so easy to be optimistic and assume any new initiative or any, you know, any investment that we make uh, in uh, expanding our go-to-market organization or expanding our product, they're, oh, it's always going to work. The dogs are going to eat the dog food right away and we're going to be off to the races. And inevitably that doesn't happen. And if you don't, if you haven't thought about what could cause it to derail up front, then you're going to be in reactive mode instead of at least having some sense in your execution plan to stage gate things or mitigate it and that sort of thing. So it's just a, a good discipline, I think. Um, hard to do because the last thing you want to be doing when you're optimistic is being, you know, um, taking kind of a, a risk view or a pessimistic view. But I, I don't think it's a bad uh, discipline to build in. I don't either. I mean, I, I will say that probably back in May or June, I want to say we reached out to all of our portfolio companies and we, we said, you know, whatever cash you have, we, we think you should have at least 18 to 24 months of cash to be able to get through this. So if you don't let us know so we can help you figure this out, how to get there and do that planning. And we're sort of saying that again now as we're seeing, you know, where the market is today. And, and, and I'll also just add like for other founders out there, when we look at new companies right now, when I'm looking at their cash flow, I am assuming that they are going to do half the growth they think they're going to do, and they're going to have twice the burn that they—I mean, twice the uh, the churn that they think they're going to have. So they're probably going to end up being flat. Like that's my assumption. So if their cash flow does not work with this fundraise for 18 to 24 months under those conditions, I'm probably I'm I'm probably not comfortable with it. Yeah, so and just, we 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 also look, and you and I both do this. We look at the kind of underlying assumptions in somebody's model, and it's hard. Like, so, like companies we invest in often at K Street are very early stage, so there's not a lot of operating history. There's not a lot of support to the assumptions, um, but we want to we want it to be like something. It's not just like oh, we're going to grow eighty percent because we're going to grow 80%. We want to say, you know, okay, well, how many, how many units do you have to sell? What AOV is that? What's your sales cycle? How many people do you have? Does it, does it pass the sniff test, you know? Um, and, it, and if it doesn't, it's okay. Let's be realistic about this. But to your point that that means you're going to need more. And so, um, so really building kind of models that are built in strong assumptions and ideally some history that gives us some sense of it, I think is important. There's so many things that can get in the way uh, in terms of disruptors. And likewise, there's a lot of things that can go right, but you've got to model the business, understanding the risk of the downside more than, you know, if everything's going well above plan, it's super easy. But when things aren't, that's that's how you have to model your business and manage it. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, talking about some of the things that venture backed or early stage companies should be looking at right now themselves, whether, whether they have strong cash flow or not. I, I just think all companies, there's certain things that all companies should be looking at regardless of the economic environment we're in. And like one of those is just actually monitoring your cash flow um, regularly. Like yeah. a lot of things you were just 
touching on, uh, Rich, but I think a lot of companies just don't do that at all until they are concerned about it. And then it's kind of too late. You haven't, you, you know, so. I mean, I, I was a tech research analyst and I, I don't know very many of uh, analysts on Wall Street that model cash flow for tech companies. I mean, you know, it's kind really? of an unheard of thing. Yeah, no, I mean, maybe they do now, but after, you know, bubbles bursting and that sort of thing. But mm -hmm. before that, it was kind of, it was all focused on, on growth and EBITDA and all, you know, all those valuations are based on that, which is fine if the company has ample cash and a strong balance sheet. But, you know, depending on the sector and the uh, and the type of business model, the cash flow really matters because that member that that billing, the, the, the sales to the bookings to billings to collection cycle is everything. And uh, you've got to get that right. It's everything. And I think actually, Rich, maybe can you just unpack that a little bit for other people who don't know what that means? Because I think that's an important thing for founders and investors to to understand how to do. Yeah. And certain business models are advantaged here than others, right? Like SaaS businesses tend to, you'll sell a subscription, you'll tend to bill upfront. So my sale is my, whatever I sell the subscription for. My billing is what, uh, what my contract terms say I can bill. So oftentimes you can bill a year in advance. Um, and then, and then the collection cycles, how quickly can I convert that, uh, billing into collections? Um, and, and, and that's when I bring the cash in and that's so important to keep that cycle as tight as possible. Revenue takes care of itself. If you're a SaaS business, you're recognizing kind of the revenue over the life of the contract. So that's, that's just simple math. But, you know, if you're not getting paid on a timely basis and you're not getting your invoice out and you don't try to create contractual terms that are favorable. And by the way, salespeople um, have to be educated on this too, because a salesperson wants to close a deal. And, you know, it's a big difference to the company, your company, if your salesperson is, um, you know, it's cutting a deal at the, you know, whatever the best price is, but also the best terms, right? So if I can uh, collect everything up front, that's a big difference than if I bill you quarterly or I bill you, you know, half now and half in six months or, uh, you know, that sort of thing or bill you every month and that slows down your collection cycle. So, you know, as you think about founders thinking about designing commission plans and that sort of thing, creating the right behaviors that aren't always about just maximizing the size of the deal, but also the terms of the deal. Because otherwise you're turning into a bank for your customer. You're floating them, uh, you're floating your you're floating them as opposed to, you know, them giving you the money up front and you can do more things with it up front. So I think that's why that's such an important cycle. And it's it's oftentimes not as well understood, especially in like, you know, uh, software and SaaS companies as it is in, you know, other, other industries. Exactly. Yeah, I guess. And I, I, there's a couple other things I would say, but Manu, are there other, I guess, advice you might have for founders in terms of things they should be doing anyway, and, uh, you know, in their day-to-day -day operations in terms of monitoring cash flow or making sure that they sort of have that managed and under control. I, I don't know if I have a, a whole lot more to say. Maybe that things not to do. Um, <laughs> I I think it's uh, and and maybe there'll be a transition to the the next topic as well. But I, I think at times I've encountered uh, founders who maybe were taking uh, sort of treasury risk, so that they're they're operating cash uh, in the name of maybe additional an additional couple of points of yield on that cash. They were putting it in uh, let's say some some crypto savings accounts. Uh, or or some other sort of uh, market instrument that would give them uh, a higher yield, and uh, and there's no free lunch. And and then what I would say is sort of it's a buzzword, but like control the controllables. Like you you're already a risky enterprise, right? Your core business is growth, and there's inherent risk in it. Don't 
take additional risks beyond that. Control what you can. Protect your operating cash. Your investors have invested in you with the knowledge that they're taking risk on the venture itself, not that they're also taking risk on how you manage the treasury itself. And so I, I think that's that's important. Um, and so you know, being conservative with you know where where you store that money and and how you treat it, I think is important. Maybe a a little bit of a transition to the next topic. I'm not sure. Yeah, and and one other thing I wanted to just add to this point, Paige, is um, the importance of having leading indicators. So, in other words, um, it is really important as a, as a, a entrepreneur uh, or a startup founder to build a um, a, a dashboard of leading indicators um, uh, for for these metrics, right? And so, those metrics, like if I were building it for depending on the company, yes, I care about ARR, I care about retention rate. But I very much care about you know uh, how 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 big is my re outstanding receivables? How are they aging? Um, um, what are we doing about you know collecting? What does my sales and my bookings look like? All, that whole cycle, you should model it out, and you should be getting reports on it uh, as frequently as possible. You know, at, at least uh, at least weekly or biweekly. And if you wait too long, it's too late. And so, building that infrastructure. Um, is important. It's not just about the accounting side of it. It's more importantly about how you, you know, the, the old saying, you can't manage what you can't measure. And so being able to have those, you know, whatever that dashboard is, you can always make it more complicated over time, but start simple with the things that matter most, three or four things that you need to monitor regularly. And then, you, you know, you can always peel the onion back layer after layer, but it's really important to get that uh, investment done upfront because that's how you'll manage your business. You should run your, your your management meetings based off of those to start with, um, and you'll see early warning signs of trouble if you do that, um, and you won't get caught off guard. I mean, there will always be things like you know that catch us off guard, like COVID or war or uh, Silicon Valley Bank you know, runs and these things that we can't anticipate. To, but to Manu's point, control what you can control, and, and in order to control it, you've got to you've got to be able to measure it and track it regularly. Yeah. And I'll just add two quick things, um, two quick other tips that I that I see a lot is a lot of founders, or a lot of companies, just they're not looking at their collections at all. I don't know what it is, but it's like once you get in there, there's a huge amount of overdue collections. You could just be getting those right now. And so just, you know, being vigilant about monitoring your AR and 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 proactively reaching out to get that. I think is, is one thing. And then the other one is just check your own subscriptions, right? Like a lot of us have accrued a number of subscriptions over the years that our businesses might not be using anymore or don't necessarily need that much, as well as like turnovers happened, people have left and come, and maybe you've got way more licenses than you need. So I think, you know, you can save like thousands a month if you just go through that process regularly and make sure that you're up to date. So with that, I would, I, unless Rich, were you going to say something? No. Okay. Maybe we switch over to the Silicon Valley Bank topic and um, and 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 sort of just you know in recap, Silicon Valley Bank is probably the biggest venture bank in the world, I think. Um, and over half the startups in the U.S. bank with Silicon Valley Bank, half the venture funds bank with Silicon Valley Bank. So it's a huge player in our ecosystem. And obviously, if you've been watching the news, you probably saw that it uh, it collapsed on Friday, came back into operation on Monday. Um, but, uh, and all the depositors were secured, but I think there was a, you know, unfortunate combination of cash on hand with their accounts and the value of the bonds that they had on their books. And, uh, and that all sort of collided with the venture 
ecosystem doing a bank run last Friday. So luckily it seems like it's been resolved for, for the time being and, and it seems like it's going to be all right, but there's implications from that, Rich. And I would love to just, you know, and, and my, like your perspectives on how you think the outcome of that is going to play out here. Um, sure. Manu, do you want to go? Or you want me to go? Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. I mean, this is a, this is hard cause it's, it's difficult to know exactly all the different implications. Um, but what I, what I can say is, um, my, my sense is first of all, um, like anything else, when there's a, a, a shock like this, and, and, and this look, this shock is um, somewhat different than the financial crisis where there was real systemic risk and, uh, and, and you know, almost a house of cards. This is, this is more of a, uh, you know, the, 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 the Fed um, raising rates aggressively. And, and you know, sometimes that uh, as aggressive as it happens, at some point, something's going to break. I think what they were hoping would break wasn't this. I think they were hoping what would break is inflation and, you know, economy cools down a little bit, consumer cools down a little bit, and they can kind of, you know, create that soft landing. But there's unintended consequences. And that's that's kind of what happened here was this liquidity crisis. And by the way, it's not just Silicon Valley Bank. Every bank is facing liquidity crisis. For some reason, Silicon Valley Bank is not as tightly monitored or regulated uh, from a risk perspective as let's say a community bank who I'm dealing with a lot and they're constantly managing their risks very carefully. But a lot of these banks have the same liquidity issues because the deposits are leaking into lots of other places. Uh, to Manu's point, it might be leaking to seek yield or it might be leaking to non-bank financial companies or it might be uh, just leaking because in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, there wasn't as much venture money being thrown at these companies and they were burning cash, right? And so, um, and you have to counterbalance that with, um, uh, with uh, your right, li li liquidity ratios. And so, that, but that's happening all up and down the, the banking system to some degree, but no nothing is concentrated here. So I think one, there'll be regulatory implications that'll come out of this in terms of oversight and like, who is asleep at the switch and all the usual stuff that will happen there, which unfortunately I think will create more burden on financial institutions of all sizes, more regulatory uh, and compliance requirements. Um, and again, that's good for my thesis of technology to help banks become more efficient. But, uh, but it's already overbearing depending on the bank size. But more importantly, I think, um, as it relates to the risk appetite today, and, and I don't know how long today lasts, but um, I do believe the risk appetite, which was already kind of uh, a little, was lower than it has been for obvious reasons, I feel like is gonna take a hit um, for the near term. Um, so I think what that means is access to capital and access to credit, whether it's venture capital or credit is gonna become much more complicated for companies which makes this whole cash flow thing even more important to be very judicious in how you, you spend your money. And I also think it, therefore it will impact valuations and multiples a bit. Um, and that could be also uh, bad for uh, the venture capital world of the last however many years where, you know, if you look at SaaS multiples, they're at seven year lows right now, right? So there's a lot of money that was invested in the last few years that are um, and it's really come down over the last 18 months, two years. So, you know, anything that's been invested before that was at much higher multiples than where we are today. Exciting to be in the venture business today and deploying capital and the chance for outsized returns is good, but the risk appetite is lower. So I think deals will have longer diligence cycles. I think, um, the, you know, the, 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 the um, uh, quality of, uh, of companies, uh, presentations and uh, and and support and data and everything they're going to have to do to get investment is going to the bar is going to raise 
Um, and it's going to take a little while for valuations to, you know, to return to some level of normal. I don't think, you know, I don't think they're going to go to the crazy lofty peaks, but I think they'll normalize. But I think deals are going to take longer. Uh, the terms will be more onerous and, and uh, it's just going to be that way for a while. Um, and I don't know what a while is because I, you know, I think we were in somewhat of a, you know, Goldilocks scenario, um, but that wasn't necessarily healthy either. And I think, you know, hopefully we get to somewhat of a normal scenario, but I think for a while it's going to be, it's going to be like swimming upstream. That's, that's my, that's my quick take. I, you know. Mata, do you have any thoughts on this? I, I don't have too much sort of insight on, on the future, but I do, I think, appreciate the, the value of SVB almost as a cautionary tale. I think it goes back to what Rich was saying, like trust is won in drops, but it's lost in buckets. And I think this is a, a bank that had been around for 30, almost 40 years and effectively shut down in 24 hours. Uh, and I think that the tale there is, you know, for, for all founders, regardless of, you know, how strong we think our position is, we always have to, to keep an eye out. We have always have to be thoughtful in our communication and, and sort of protecting downside. Uh, and I think uh, it's a, it's a good reminder of that. And, um, you know, don't for for you know the few companies that that unfortunately found themselves with most of their assets stuck at at SVB, even though it only lasted a weekend, and so it's you know hopefully a an okay uh, end of the story. It's a good reminder of the, the need for diversification, whatever in, in whatever context it may be, whether it's your your own bank deposits, having a a few different banks and established banks, uh, or it's you know your customer base and ensuring that you don't have you don't have this. It's a redundancy risk of of just having you know one huge customer depending uh, that that all your um, revenue depends on or or key employees uh, that are that are critical and without which your your company fails. So I I think it, I appreciate the value of the the SVB story in that light. I think it's it's a good reminder for all of us. Yeah, it was a tragic series of events, but some people are also saying that you know since Biden obviously spoke about this on Monday. And, and there's some people that think there is now a renewed inspired uh, sort of confidence that, um, you know, that, that this really isn't a systemic thing and the banking system is going to be fine. And, the, and maybe it's also going to impact the Fed's decision to not raise rates any further in this next cycle, which maybe would then, you know, enable the VCs to start deploying their capital on a more regular schedule like they were doing before. So I wonder if there's a chance that that might end up happening and it, it might be a positive outcome ultimately. Yeah, I think it's interesting. It, it, it really the flip flop of uh, kind of the likelihood of a 50 basis point increase to, uh, you know, kind of being like, I think it was like you know, 70-ish percent to now sort of a, you know, less than 50% chance of any increase, right? Um, but, uh, you know, I don't know. I think, you know, the, the Fed, it's a very, this is the most probably interesting moment, I think, in Fed history in a really long time because of this kind of juxtaposition of inflation still high, right? It was 6% today. Yeah. It's not It's not coming down. It's getting a little bit better, but it's not like anywhere near where they want it to be. Unemployment, the numbers haven't, uh, you know, given all of the layoffs that are taking place, it's not worked its way into the actual data that they look at. So at some point it probably will, but for now it's not. So their mandate, right, is... Um, you know, is full employment and, uh, and, you know, 2% inflation. And now there's a systemic thing that they have to think about. And so I'd be surprised if they don't do anything. And um, because I think they, 
they still have their kind of mission, but it's, it's possible and maybe it will create what you described. And I think the biggest thing that's not being written about in this, um, in this backstop that's happened over the weekend is the fact that, um, that the uh, Fed has also given some grace to the banks around the liquidity uh, tests um, when they have their um, capital tied up in, in, uh, in treasuries, right? And so yeah. that yeah. to me is a bigger thing than the, you know, the depositor insurance uh, issue, because I think that actually takes some of the pressure off of the, the mark to market challenge uh, that, that these banks are facing. And that's the story that's not being written too much right now, but that to me will, will be interesting to see if that takes, if that loosens up things a little bit, it's hard to know. Yeah, totally agree. Well, if I think bank, if I'm a bank CEO and we talk to them all, all the time. I just not sure they're willing to kind of say, okay, I'll take some additional risk and that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm out of the hot water liquidity wise. Um, I think they'll still be very cautious, but I think if we start to see rates come down a little bit, that takes a lot of the pressure off. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, well, it'd be interesting to see what happens, but I would just say for all the founders out there, you know, part of why I wanted to combine this with our discussion around cash flows, because things aren't going to get better from a cash flow perspective. They might say the same. I don't think they're going to get a whole lot better, but they might get worse. So these are just all the things we should be thinking about. And now I actually just saw a, a note from the new CEO of Silicon Valley Bank saying that they are still issuing credit. They are still issuing facilities. So you know, I don't know if that's happening at the same rate it was happening before or what the deal is with that, but. Um, I, I, I will say as a Silicon Valley bank client, I was just very happy to finally get into the system today because yeah. even though it was available yesterday, the system was down all day. So oh, okay. um, it was, it was, I, I slept okay because I, I knew that we were going to be okay, but it was a good relief to get in there today and, uh, and, and see the, see the actual money in your bank account. Again. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So there's definitely going to be a slowdown there and I think everyone just needs to be prepared for it. Yeah. Um, cool. Any other last final thoughts? Awesome. I, I, I like the saying, uh, never waste a good crisis. I think there's yeah. always something to be learned and, and something to be changed or adjusted for, you know, anticipating future shocks. So I, I would say, uh, hopefully everyone learned something from this SVB event and uh, is making changes to their business so that they're more resilient and uh, even more ready for the next uh, sort of unexpected shock, if you will. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah thank well, well thank said. you guys so much for being on the episode. It was uh, a pleasure. Thanks for having us and uh, hope yeah. we get to do it again. And um, Manu, uh, keep up the great work you guys are doing. You're doing Definitely. really important work that's good for uh, good good for the world. Thank you. Thank you, you so much, Rich. And thank you, Paige. Really appreciate it. And that's a wrap for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a review and a rating. And uh, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks.